Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Way deep. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of Nice Corp. Nice people doing nice things. Prince Harry, no relation, is suing the uh, British tabloid paper of Rupert Murdoch, as well as his industry rival, Mirror Group, for allegedly hacking his phone. Still? Again? Phone? Hacking? This is from a source called Byline. Byline investigates the British uh, news site. In a major escalation, they say, of uh, Prince Harry's war in Fleet Street, which is the legendary home of British news publications, the Duke of Sussex filed suit in uh, London court, alleging both news groups misused his private information for stories. This may be the first time a serving member of the royal family enters the witness box in trials against Rupert, one of his uh, relatives, maybe. An appearance by the prince in the witness box would immediately make this an historic moment in British law, said uh, one of the sources. The um, separately legal action was filed by his wife, Megan, Duchess of Sussex, alleging the misuse of a private family letter. Prince's claim won't uh, proceed to trial until early 2021. Let me tell you from personal experience, that's fast. At the soonest, it says, and we'll focus in part on the activities of private detectives commissioned by The Sun, a newspaper still in business owned by Nice Corp, and News of the World, which uh, went out of business as a result of the phone hacking charges Ooh, way back when. The Sun's owners have always denied any wrongdoing on behalf of the paper. The um, newspaper chains up till now have had a strategy of settling, settling individual hacking claims out of court. Uh, the goal, of course, was to prevent a case that makes serious allegations about a top-level cover-up of industrial-scale wrongdoing from being publicly aired. You see, the settlement comes with a, you, oh, you won't be talking about this to anybody, will you, agreement? How far is Prince Harry prepared to go? The Murdoch papers, as well as the Mirror Group papers, have a record of settling phone hacking cases at the door of the court, preventing a public trial at which executives and reporters past and present would be required to account for themselves and at which all the facts would come into the open, says a media commentator, Professor Brian Cathcourt. On the other hand, you know, Prince Harry's got all the money in the world, thanks to the British taxpayer. He might want to go all the way to trial just to embarrass a Murdoch or two. The original phone hacking cases cost Rupert Murdoch an estimated one billion pounds. That's more than a billion dollars. Let's get that Kickstarter going, people. Hello, welcome to the show.
Santa Monica, California, the home of the homeless. I'm Harry Shearer. Welcome you to this edition of the show on, in a what you see what you, is what you get kind of week, it seems like. Uh, there's nobody arguing anymore about what happened. What happened? Uh, the argument is just, well, what do you think about it? Is it okay? So we've made progress. And now... TVs are going down the same road that turned the web and smartphone apps into a cesspool of surveillance. That's a quote from computer scientist Arvind Narayana, assistant professor at Princeton and leader of the Web Transparency and Accountability Project. Those would be nice. He pointed to three recently published reports, the first which he co-authored, 
<laughs> Why not plug yourself? Looks at over-the-top TV streaming devices, your Roku and Amazon Fire. Traffic to known traffic trackers present on 69% of Roku channels and 89% of Amazon Fire TV channels. We This is from the paper. We also observed that certain OTT, that's over-the-top channels, contact more than 60 tracking domains, and the data shared with the trackers include video titles, Wi-Fi IDs, MAC addresses, and device serial numbers. That is to say, your entire digital trail. This follows the Washington Post's own tech writer, who wrote a piece called You Watch TV, Your TV is Watching You, coming to much of the same conclusions, but this is a little more detailed. The researchers also looked at Piehole, that's a free network-level blocker for trackers and advertisers, saying it's only partly effective. 26% of one kind of leak and 44% of serial number leaks are missed by Piehole. Our analysis, the paper says, of the available privacy countermeasures showed they are ineffective at preventing tracking. Second paper, Information Exposure from Consumer IoT Devices, co-authored by researchers at Northwestern and Imperial, Col- Imperial College London. Devices include cameras, video doorbells, home automation devices, TVs, smart speakers, and appliances. The report says TVs contact the largest number of third parties among all device categories. TV devices in the studies tests include uh, contacted Netflix even though we never configured any TV with a Netflix account. They want to talk to Netflix so bad. The paper also notes that 50% of the overall destinations contacted by U.S. devices are third or support parties. 56% of the U.S. devices, 83% of the U.K. devices contact destinations outside their region. Hello, China. Hello, Ukraine. The third document, also from Princeton, looks at statistics from the university's IoT inspector. It's a tool that runs on Mac or Linux to analyze IoT, Internet of Things network traffic. Smart TVs, they found, contacted 350 advertising or tracking domains. The top two were Google's DoubleClick and Google Syndication. Hello, Google. 41% of the TVs contacted domains that would be blocked by the Firefox Disconnect tool, though one of the issues is that smart TVs lack this kind of privacy control. The researchers noted Roku now makes more money from advertising than from revenue from its hardware player. Narayanan says it's unfortunate that TV platforms are turning to targeted ads as the main way to make money. To maximize revenue, they will likely turn to data mining and algorithmic personalization and persuasion to keep people glued to the screen for as long as possible. Unquote. He worried about potential developments such as cross-device tracking using an ultrasonic beam from TV to smartphone in order to link the two. Unlike web tracking, our ability to control tracking on TVs is limited because TVs are closed platforms. There's no analog of browser extensions you could install in your TV. can't install anything in it, except your eyeballs. Google is releasing a fix for Lenovo smart displays. This is... Uh, a third party, not a not a Google Assistant, but a third party device that uses Google Assistant software. A recent update caused some displays to get stuck in 
And here's a situation you never want to get stuck in. A continuous boot loop. I said a continuous boot loop. I said it without the popping that time. On initial bop, uh, boot up, it will attempt to download any available updates, including the update causing the boot loop on some devices. That affects new devices right out of the box. Right out of the box. They're thinking out of the box. Reports surfaced in a thread on Lenovo's support website beginning about a month and a half ago. The issue causes the display to suddenly stop around 45% into the update, reboot, and then attempt to install the update again. Each time the update hits 45%, the issue repeats itself. Lenovo acknowledged the issue this week, saying Google has made it a top priority. For the time being, the only course of action is to wait for the team to roll out a a fix. I apologize for the inconvenience and hope this is sorted out as soon as possible, said a Lenovo support employee. Lenovo's smart display was one of the first non-Google virtual assistants to appear on the market with a dedicated display, part of a larger effort by Google to allow third parties to build devices based on the Google Assistant platform so they can control the world. So just stand by. You'll be out of the continuous boot loop when Google fixes it. Speaking of Google, Google's Sidewalk Labs plans to uh, build a smart city from the Internet up in a disused waterfront area of Toronto. But those plans contain too much tech for tech's sake, according to an independent panel. They also accused the company of being too vague about what it planned to do. Oh, no, Google? Some of the planned innovations were irrelevant or unnecessary, and it did not seem to put citizens first. Yeah, I wonder who they do, whom they do put first. Sidewalk Labs, which is the part of Google that wants to do this, has conducted, they say, thousands of Torontonians, and they're at the core of its development plans. But the panel of 15 people, including academics, urban technology, and legal experts, quote, felt the plan did not appear to put the citizen at the center of the design process for digital in- innovations, as was promised in the beginning, and is necessary for legitimacy. Some of the solutions felt like tech for tech's sake, applying a complex technological solution to a situation that mostly doesn't need it, it said. There were often much simpler solutions to problems, such as how to use public space. Not sure where to put a path in a new park, plant grass, give it two months, go back, see where people tramp the grass down, called desire lines, and off you go, build your path there, said the report. Well, it's like you could use a, a, a key to open your door, too. The panel was set up last year by Waterfront Toronto, the public body overseeing the project. They also questioned Sidewalk Labs linked to parent company Alphabet with its significant economic and political power, the data-driven business model of many of its corporate siblings, and the lobbying efforts it had made around its plans. Next month, Toronto officials must decide whether to approve or reject. The smart city. It is a, it's a smart world. Why not a, maybe a smart county first? You know, work your way up. Nothing dumber than a smart world. And now... News of the Godly. A prominent Baltimore Archbishop, the late Cardinal Lawrence J. Sheehan, transferred priests accused of sexual abuse to new posts without disciplining them or warning parishioners when he led the Bridgeport, Connecticut diocese decades ago according to an independent report issued this week. Never heard of that behavior before, have we? 
Sheehan died in 1984 at age 86, is among several former Bridgeport bishops scrutinized in a report commissioned by the diocese there in response to the Catholic Church's sexual abuse crisis. That's the wording of the Baltimore Sun. The diocese's practice of a bishop's reassigning a priest following an abuse accusation began during Bishop Sheehan's tenure, states the report. He knew of multiple specific incidents of abuse by then-active priests in the diocese and assigned the priest to new postings with no discipline and no warnings to the communities. He served as Archbishop of Baltimore from 61 to 74, becoming a cardinal in 1965 and a raven soon after. Oh, sorry, no. In an email to the Sun, Baltimore Archdiocese spokesman Sean Kane said that the archdiocese has apologized repeatedly for the church's past response to allegations of abuse, including in the time period of the 50s and 60s. The Archdiocese has certainly recognized for a long time that the Church's response to abuse allegations, especially in the 50s through the 70s, was completely inadequate, he said. But we're good now. He didn't say that. Described as a revered son of Baltimore in an evening sun obituary, Sheehan was known for his work promoting civil rights for his opposition to the Vietnam War. He banned discrimination in Catholic institutions, took part in the 1963 March on Washington, in 1966, he was booed at a city council meeting when he advocated for a fair housing measure. And then there's the other thing. Former, former Marist brother Michael Beaumont has admitted sexually abusing girls in the 1970s, the most painful, uh, sorry, no, and possessing objectionable material as recently as May. He's a former Marist brother. He's found to still have a sexual interest in young girls 40 years later. This is in New Zealand. In the 50s, he abused a nine-year-old girl while her family had their eyes closed in prayer. He admitted the historical indecent assault charge on the morning he was due to stand trial. He's also pleaded guilty, the 72-year-old fellow has, to two counts relating to touching two other girls also in the 1970s. But despite the historical nature of the offending, his sexual interest in young girls continued. Police uh, found a USB stick in his pocket when he was arrested more than a year ago. It contained eight pedophile fantasy stories that detailed the sexual abuse of children. He was sentenced this week to a year of home detention, and he was ordered to pay $3,000 in emotional harm payments and that his name should be added to the child sex offenders register. You probably don't want to go visiting at his house. He sat in the dock with his head slightly bowed. As the judge told him, his offending was a significant breach of trust. Or maybe he was just praying. He coached school sports teams and was involved in choirs and musical groups. I'm telling you. The Archbishop of Canterbury has published remarkable images of himself lying prostrate at the memorial to the victims of the 1919 Amritsar massacre in India. Writing in Facebook, Justin Welby, Symbolic head of the Anglican Communion worldwide described his deep sense of grief at the terrible atrocity committed at Amritsar a century ago. That's when British troops fired without warning on a peaceful protest of thousands of unarmed Indians in Amritsar in the state of Punjab in what became known as the Amritsar Massacre. number of those killed is a matter of dispute. We'll let them argue about that. Nearly 1,700 priests and other clergy members that the Roman Catholic Church considers credibly accused of child sexual abuse are living under the radar, maybe under the couch, with little to no oversight from religious authorities or law enforcement. This is decades after the first wave of the church abuse scandal, 
rolled across U.S. dioceses. This is according to an investigation by the Associated Press, still in business. These priests, deacons, monks, and lay people now teach middle school math. They counsel survivors of sexual assault. They work as nurses and volunteer at nonprofits aimed at helping at-risk kids. They live next to playgrounds and daycare centers. They foster and care for children. And in their time since leaving the church, dozens have committed crimes, including sexual assault and possessing child pornography, according to the AP. The recent push by Roman Catholic dioceses across the U.S. to publish the names of those it considered to be credibly accused has opened a window into the daunting problem of how to monitor and track priests who often were never criminally charged and in many cases were removed from or left the church to live as private citizens. In addition to the almost 1,700 the AP was able to identify as largely unsupervised, 76 could not be located, the remaining clergy members were found to be under some kind of supervision, some in prison or overseen by church programs. Hundreds of the priests held positions of trust, many with access to children. More than 160 continued working or volunteering in churches, including dozens in Catholic dioceses overseas and some in other denominations. Roughly 190 obtained professional licenses to work in education, medicine, social work, and counseling. Some still had credentials, valid credentials in those fields. Research also turned up cases where the priests were once again able to pray, P-R-E-Y, on victims. Let us pray. The majority of people listed as credibly accused were never criminally prosecuted. As I said, the lack of criminal history has revealed a sizable gray area. State licensing boards and background check services are not designed to handle former priests who weren't criminally involved as they seek new employment. So there's that. And let's go to Dodge City. The Catholic Diocese of Dodge City, yes, it does exist. Matt Dillon is not the bishop. Released this a list of 12 clerics or seminarians with substantiated allegations of abuse against minors. Five of the priests were assigned to the Dodge City Diocese. Five others worked at some point in the diocese. Allegations against them were made in other dioceses. Two others were seminarians. I apologize to victim survivors of child sexual abuse, especially those who were abused by priests or seminarians of the Catholic Diocese of Dodge City, said the bishop, John Brungert. In a news release, You have suffered from this terrible sin. I beg your forgiveness. I pray our Lord will give his healing love to you and your families. The bishop also offered to meet with any survivors or their families, take them out to a nice meal, And maybe some... No, he did not do that. He did offer to meet with them, though. Dodge City is the fourth and final Kansas Catholic diocese to release its list of credibly accused clerics. The Wichita Diocese named 15, Salina named 28, and Kansas City, Kansas, 22. News of the godly, ladies and gentlemen. Always good. For what ails you. And now, a new story that answers the question... What does Ukraine need less right now? That's right. The Olympics. News of the Olympic movement. Produced by Jim Ebersol the third. I know it sounds like a joke. But it's not. The president of Belarus, Alexandra Lukashenko, 
has backed a possible bid between his nation and Ukraine to host a future Olympic Games. At the second forum of regions of Belarus and Ukraine, held uh, this very week, Lukashenko endorsed the proposed joint bid after meeting last month. It would be difficult for his country to move forward alone. Yeah, the Belarus Olympics. Not happening, really. I think that our states could bid to co-host big international sports competitions, Lukashenko said. I'm thinking, I'm oh, sorry, I'm talking about the Ukrainian president's proposal to bid to co-host the Olympic Games. Together, we can do it. Remember, please, ladies and gentlemen, the Ukrainian, current Ukrainian president was formerly a comedian. Volodymyr Zelensky. In July, he called upon his sports officials to investigate a future Summer Games bid. In 2014, a bid by Lviv in Ukraine to host the 2022 Winter Games was abandoned because they were a little busy with the Russian thing in Crimea. We'll be right back to you with another bid. for the A joint bid between nations became possible in June after the IOC approved new reforms that dropped the requirement of a single city bid because they weren't getting many bids from single cities or even married cities. Now adding emphasis on the use of existing facilities they are, the IOC, you see. Belarus has also considered teaming up with Russia to mount a bid, but ongoing anti-doping issues with the Russian Federation could present a significant roadblock. According to GameBids.com Why not all three? Wouldn't that bring everybody together in a spirit of Lukashenko pointed to close cultural relations between Belarus and Ukraine that could help elevate a joint bid along with the success of Ukraine's team at the European Games held this year in the Belarus capital of Minsk. Not Pinsk. Ukraine placed third in the, only the second edition of those games. Reviews of the Minsk Games were mixed, but the legacy can be leveraged for an Olympics with the construction of some new facilities, which the IOC is discouraging at this moment, supposedly. So, that makes sense, too. Because it's the Olympics. It's a movement. And we all need one. Every day.
amava você Meu bálsamo benigno Meu signo Meu guru Porto seguro Onde eu vou ter Meu mar e minha mãe Meu medo e meu champanhe Visando espaço Sideral Now, so this is Le Show, and now some news uh, of Inspector General. Based on this observation, or leading to this observation, you know how many people went to jail for uh, possessing a joint of marijuana? Not a lot of white people, but, you know, some people, a lot of people. Uh, because the DEA was so darn determined not to have people smoke marijuana. This is by contrast. The U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration increased opioid quotas between 2002 and 2013, even as opioid deaths were on the rise, according to a report released by U.S. Inspector General Michael Horowitz. Has there ever been a week when we've been more grateful for inspectors general, ladies and gentlemen? The U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration was slow to respond to the opioid crisis, according to that report. The report detailed the DEA's failure to limit the crisis, which has claimed hundreds of thousands of lives throughout the last two decades, as opposed to marijuana, which we're waiting for the first death still. Among the findings, the DEA increased oxycodone quotas for a decade, despite opioid deaths continuing to rise, according to the report. Between 1999 and 2013, those deaths increased by an average of 8% per year, particularly sharp rise between 2013 and 2017, the deaths rose by an average of 71%. Despite that, the DEA allowed annual oxycodone production to jump by 400% between 2002 and 2013, not reducing the quota until 2017 when it was reduced by 25%. The agency also drastically diminished the use of immediate suspension orders. It just happens to be its most powerful enforcement tool, Aside from putting you in the clink, between 2013 and 2017, immediate suspension orders can prevent registrants from diverting prescription narcotics. The DEA only issued 43 orders during that stretch. It issued 45 orders in 2012 alone. Additionally, the DEA's registration process allowed opioid manufacturers, distributors, and healthcare providers to reapply the day after having their registration revoked, according to the report. Registrations are required for anyone handling controlled substances, including opioids. The agency also did not track ordering patterns for pharmaceuticals or monitor trends for controlled substance abuse. 
according to the report. So on top of it, DEA, but get those get those joint smokers put away because uh, this is your brain on the war on drugs. Well, we've gotten to the point in the show where it's time to talk about <laughs> President Trump, um, who's had a big week, let's put it that way. Um, as I mentioned earlier in the broadcast, he's turned a debate over whether he did what a whistleblower and a rough transcript of a telephone conversation suggested he did into, thanks to a couple of impromptu sessions with the press on the White House lawn with a chopper in the background, uh, a confirmation that he indeed did that and leaving his um, coterie of loyal supporters inside the Republican Party to now fight the battle over, well, what do you think of it? Is that okay? Well, that's that's okay. That's not, you know, what's, where's the, there's nothing to see. Why, why would, anyway, um, the pres- <laughs> president had a couple of these, um, shall we say, highly discursive meetings with the press this week. One in the presence of the Finnish president, who gained uh, a lot of respect in Europe for just sitting there maintaining a straight face during all of it, and one uh, in the White House itself where there was no straight man, except, of course, the um, news people who uh, set themselves up to be punching bags for the president. His defense of the telephone conversation he had with the Ukrainian president, Zelensky, now is almost habitually utilizing the word perfect to describe the uh, content of the conversation. But there's something else that's almost habitual now. His reference to himself. Believe it or not, I watch my words very carefully. There are those that think I'm a very stable genius, okay? I watch my words very, very closely. Okay. Very stable genius has occurred previously in his self-description, so it seems to be part of the—it's part of the brand. It's part of the brand. And um, in another one of those outbursts—oh, I'm sorry, discursive moments at a press conference— Mr. Trump held forth on uh, the current ubiquity of subpoenas. Now look at Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi hands out subpoenas like, you know, she has to approve it. She hands out subpoenas like they're cookies. You want a subpoena? Here you go. Take them like they're cookies. Paul Ryan would never give anybody a subpoena. He wouldn't give them when Mark Meadows went in to talk, he wouldn't give them. When Jim Jordan went in, when Devin Nunes, he would go in and they'd see Paul. I'm not saying wrong or right, but Paul Ryan, no, let's talk about it. That's a big thing to give a subpoena. Let's talk about it. Two weeks later, they're still talking. They wanted subpoenas to investigate the corrupt Democrats and the corrupt people on the other side. Paul Ryan would not give subpoenas. Nancy Pelosi, here you go. Take it. Who wants a subpoena? Every day you get subpoenas. Pelosi thinks that she's so smart, she can just spit out subpoenas. 
But she'll learn soon enough who's a very stable genius. Einstein was a real smart guy, at least that's what I'm told. He thought up all of these theories, although he looked real old. But you never saw him on TV, not network, not even cable. So, when you're talking geniuses, I'm the one who's very stable, very stable. brilliant like the sun when you needed a brand new code thought up that guy was number one but he didn't even speak English not willing maybe not able so when you're talking Geniuses, I'm the one who's very stable, very stable. Bill Gates. Steve Jobs, I've known them all, met them more than twice. The Google people, the Facebook guy, they'd ask for my advice. Clearly, they were sharp as tacks, sitting at my conference table. When you're talking geniuses, I'm the one that's very stable, very stable. Elon Musk is building ships to Mars and maybe Venus. But even nutty Elon knows I'm a very stable genius. Ever since the world ended, I don't go out as much. 
people that I once befriended just don't bother to stay in touch. Things that used to seem so splendid don't really matter today. It's just as well the world ended. It wasn't working anyway. Ever since the world ended, there's no more Bible Belt. Remember how we all pretended going round line by the way we felt. Every rule has been amended. There's no one keeping score. It's just as well the world ended. We couldn't have taken much more. Since the world ended, there's no more black or white. Ever since we all got blended, there's no more reason to fuss and fight. Dogmas that we Defended, no longer seem worthwhile. 
Ever since the world ended, I faced the future. Ladies and gentlemen, you may have noticed that on today's broadcast, all the music heard here on is on vinyl. And uh, that's because we're trying to help the kids, as per the recommendation of Joe Biden. Play the radio. Make sure the television, excuse me, make sure you have the record player on at night. And now... I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, I am. Microplastics. Think about it. Will you think about it? Yes, I will. Enough said. You think microplastics are good for human health? Well, guess what? You might be wrong. Microplastics may harm human health. (laughs) Researchers at the University Medical Center at Utrecht made that claim this week. Research presented at the Plastic Health Summit in Amsterdam will reveal that immune cells that recognize and attack microplastics will die quickly as a result of the contact. It's like meeting your agent. Experiments showed immune cells that encounter microplastics under lab conditions die around three times more quickly than those that don't. Of course, lab conditions are not world conditions. Some forms of accelerated cell death or damage can prompt an inflammatory response in the body. As you may know, inflammatory response is responsible for most of the bad stuff that happens to us. The uh, study was led by an assistant professor at the UMC Utrecht Center for Quantitative Immunology. My favorite kind of immunology. Microplastics coated in blood plasma were placed in culture dishes. I guess they sing Carmen in those dishes. Alongside human immune cells under lab conditions, some 20% of immune cells tested in culture dishes without microplastics died within a day. When immune cells came into contact with microplastics, 60% of the cells died within the same time period. This rate of cell death is thought to be far in excess of when immune cells encounter and engulf most bacteria or foreign bodies. That is from theecologist.org. And driving is not just an air pollution and climate change problem. Turns out it might just be the largest contributor of microplastics in California coastal waters. This is one of many new findings released Wednesday, reported in the L.A. Times from the most comp... The L.A. Times? They still have that? Uh, From the most comprehensive study to date on microplastics in California. Rainfall washes more than 7 trillion pieces of microplastics, much of it tire particles left behind on streets, into San Francisco Bay each year. That's 300 times greater than what comes from microfibers washing off polyester clothes, <laughs> microbeads from beauty projects, and the many other plastics washing down sinks and sewers. A team of researchers led by the San Francisco Estuary Institute and the Five Gyres Institute set off to create an inventory to identify all the ways these different microplastics were getting into the bay. Mark Gold, who heads the state's Ocean Protection Council, said he was surprised that car tire particles were such a large 
source. Quote, I'm so used to thinking of the bo- of the toxics that come from urban runoff and not the actual physical particles from something like tire dust, he said. But the sheer number of particles, the scope and the scale of this problem makes you realize this is something that's definitely worth looking at a great deal more. Seriously. These partic- That's an end of the quote. These particles often contain harmful chemical additives like flame retardants or plasticizers. Can we have more plasticizers? Because it's not plastic enough around here. But the overwhelming diversity in size and chemical composition also makes toxicity difficult to predict, let alone study, let alone care about. As for rubber fragments, they can be toxic because of the fossil fuel-associated compounds that they are likely picking up. The San Francisco findings are a window into other populated coastal areas with so many bridges and roads crisscrossing the watershed. I blame the bridges. One word, microplastics. And now, ye old apologies of the week. We're so sorry. Sports company Asics has apologized after screens outside its flagship store in Auckland, New Zealand showed pornography for several hours. The content played on the store's promotional outdoor screens above the entrance until staff arrived at 10 a.m. last Sunday to open the store. The Japanese sports company said hackers had gained access to the system to show the content. We would like to apologize to anyone who may have seen this, the firm said. Asics, 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 said an unknown person gained access to the screens above our central Auckland store and some objectionable content was displayed on the screen. According to the New Zealand Herald, the pornographic content played for nine hours until turned off by staff. The paper cites security officer saying that some people were shocked, others just stopped and watched. Yes, and I think other people did other things. Kenji Kirishima, president of Japanese nuclear fuel processing company, JCO Company, apologized in a recent interview for a deadly nuclear criticality incident that occurred at its facility in Ibaraki Prefecture, northeast, northeast of Tokyo, 20 years ago. Quote, I want to offer an apology anew from the bottom of my heart to victims and other affected people. He said, the September 30th, 1999 accident in the village of Tokai left two workers dead, more than 660 residents exposed to radiation. In the accident, uranium solution that was poured into a precipitation tank in an amount that substantially exceeded the safety limit, led to a state of criticality, releasing neutrons into the atmosphere. JCO and six employees have been convicted of charges, including professional negligence, resulting in death. At present, the company engages mainly in storage and management of uranium waste after its license to process fuel was revoked in 2000. Well, we can trust them with waste, can't we? Nothing bad can happen with waste. A 12-year-old Virginia girl who accused her classmates of holding her down and cutting her hair now says she falsely accused the boys, according to a school statement. The girl garnered public support last week when she spoke out about the alleged attack in which she said three boys at Springfield's Emanuel Christian School attacked her and cut her dreadlocks. Now school officials say she has acknowledged the allegations were false. To those young boys and their parents, we sincerely apologize for the pain and anxiety these allegations have caused, her family said in a statement. To the broader community who rallied in such passionate support for our daughter, we apologize for betraying your trust. We understand there will be consequences. We're prepared 
to take responsibility for them. But where are the dreads? Deadline Prague Blackhawks, Chicago Blackhawks announcer Pat Foley apologized to the Eisbären Berlin organization this week, two days after making a racially insensitive comment about one of their players during the telecast of, telecast of the Hawks preseason game in Berlin. Ich bin ein Berliners. Means donuts. Earlier in the third period, Foley was calling the play-by-play when he referenced Berlin forward Austin Ortega by saying, Ortega, who sounds like he ought to be a shortstop. Ortega was born and raised in California. He elected not to speak with Foley directly. Foley spoke with a member of the organization who passed on the apology to Ortega, who took it like a shortstop. Prime Minister Boris Johnson of the UK apologized to the Queen after the United Kingdom's Supreme Court ruled last week that the suspension of the House of Commons he asked her to approve was unlawful, according to the Times of London. Johnson made the apology in a call after the High Court ruled against the five-week suspension. He got onto the Queen as quickly as possible to say how sorry he was, an insider told the newspaper. The University of Wisconsin-Madison has apologized for a homecoming video that featured almost all white students. The now-deleted video created by the university's homecoming committee and released on Facebook prompted criticism from current and former students who noted that the underrepresented population the video references had been left out of the recording entirely. To promote student homecoming, we recently produced a video, Home is Where We, Wisconsin, W-I, are, and we invited various student groups to to participate in the video, the committee said in a statement. Unfortunately, not all the video images produced were included in the final product, including those of students from underrepresented populations. A couple of black students made known, who were taped for the presentation but not included in it, made known their displeasure. Y'all can't hire folks who are doing the editing and outreach that maybe share some of the identities missing from the video who could call out how you missed the mark. Is your staff diverse? Said one of them. The university and the Alumni Association, which sponsors the homecoming committee, apologized to students and alumni in separate statements this week for what they described as the video's partial representation of the student body which as of fall last year was 70% white. The university said, We know that both historically and today, students of color and other underrepresented groups do not feel as welcome on our campus as majority students. As a community, we must commit to and invest in ways to change this. Unquote. The Apologies of the Week, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And remember a year ago when Adnan Khashoggi was killed, the um, columnist for the Washington Post, Saudi Arabian, lured to Saudi Embassy in Istanbul, Turkey, and then killed and dismembered. And all of these uh, corporations were going to go to the big investment conference in uh, Saudi Arabia, begged off, you know, because of their (laughs) conscience. Well, they're back this year. Human rights advocates say this kingdom is yet to develop or deliver justice. But business leaders have been far more forgiving. Senior executives from Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan Chase, Citigroup, and BlackRock will be returning to the kingdom for Davos, Davos, Davos in the desert. More than 150 executives have confirmed their attendance, including more than 40 executives from U.S. companies, the head of Russia's Sovereign Wealth Fund is attending. 
and defense contractors from China, India, the United Arab Emirates, and several European countries. And Jared Kushner is going to be there. BlackRock Chief Executive Larry Fink, he withdrew last year, has framed his decision to return to Saudi Arabia as an effort to promote change in the kingdom. I believe greater economic integration and diversification will help Saudi Arabia build a more modern and sustainable economy where bone saws won't be nearly as available. No, he didn't say that. When um, corporations, especially financial corporations, brandish their social conscience, check back every three months, won't you? Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over the same radio stations and on your audio device of choice at your time of choice. It's a whole choice thing. And it'd be just like this program being rated as choice, if not prime, if you would agree to join with us then. Would you already? Thank you very much. A tip of the show show power to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Thomas Walsh from WWNO New Orleans for help with today's program. The email address for the show, your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts, and the playlist of the music, it's all at harryshare.com. And come come get me. Come meet me on the, on the common, on the commons, at the harryshare, twitter.com. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the home of the homeless.